Well done, well done. I got to believe for everybody on that first Christmas experience, everything did change. Matter of fact, I have to believe that's an understatement. Everything changed. Everything changed. From the time the angel made his first visit to Mary and Joseph to the birth of Christ, everything changed. I have to believe that nothing in Joseph's and Mary's life is going as planned. And most likely to them, it doesn't even make sense. I'm sure Joseph thought, this is not how I thought my life would go. And I'm sure Mary thought, this is not how I thought my first child would come. The marriage ceremony hadn't even been completed yet. Going to Bethlehem is not where they planned to spend the last weeks of pregnancy. Rome was in charge. You ever traveled to another country that had a certain amount of fear in it when you landed? You ever gone to a place that was in an occupied territory and you weren't sure of where you stood based on what was going on around you? That's what it's like for them to all of a sudden arrive in Bethlehem under Rome's rule. My wife and I had the privilege of speaking to missionaries in West Africa for the last number of years, most of the time in the Ivory Coast and Senegal. One time when we went to the Ivory Coast and we happened to take our girls with us, we landed right in the middle of a military coup. Every day was an uncertain day. Matter of fact, when we finally, after being in house bound for the first couple of days, they allowed us to go up north to the north country, and every single few miles there was a checkpoint with someone with M16s and all kinds of AK-47s and even some bazookas. You never knew where you stood. You never knew whether they were liking you be there, being there or they didn't want you there. And you really wasn't even sure whose side was who. But you knew you weren't in a good place. And you knew it was a little bit uncertain and a little bit unsafe to be there. I've got to believe for Mary and Joseph, going to Rome or going to Bethlehem under Rome's rule was not on their radar screen. And it was certainly not something they planned. For Mary and Joseph, I have to believe that they had hopes of bringing their first baby home in Nazareth. Surrounded by family and friends, not in a strange place among strangers. No room in the inn. Born in a stable, every single plan I believe they had, had changed. At least according to their minds. None of it seemed right. And to them, none of it made sense. But when God was the one orchestrating the events, the timing was perfect. And every single event was going exactly as he planned. There's a fascinating verse in Galatians chapter 4 that doesn't talk to us about the Christmas story at all, but it just simply said this. But when the time had fully come, at the right appropriate moment, God pulled back the curtains of heaven and sent forth his son. Christmas story is an amazing series of events, miracles, and the timing of God. I want to read them all to you this morning. First one out of Matthew chapter 1. Then we're going to go to Luke 1 and Luke 2. <coughs> In Matthew chapter 1, you're going to see the changes that Joseph is about to go through. What I want you to see is the sequence of events as it unfolds here, and I'll refer to it later in the message, but look at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Now, to them, that was a pretty certain event. It wasn't like the engagement and would narrow this field down and we'll make the decision as to whether or not I want to marry this one. It was a really serious event. They've made a commitment to one another, a commitment that wasn't going to change. 
But before they came together physically, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, he knew what that would cost, which is what that meant. But he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. So he had in mind to end it or to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home to be your wife. Because what is conceived of her or in her is of the Holy Spirit. Put yourself in Joseph's place for a moment. Wouldn't you have liked to have known that first? Before you found out what you found out, that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit, wouldn't you have referred or preferred that the angel showed up first and then told you that, and then the events unfurled? The timing of God, even though it didn't make sense to Joseph, was perfect. If you give birth to a son, the angel said, you were to give him the name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 26, gives us a story of change for Mary. It tells us in that context that God sent an angel, his name was Gabriel, to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pled to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings to you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Don't be afraid. Mary, because you have found favor with God, you will conceive and give birth to a son. You're to call him Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he'll reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How can this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One born to be born will be called the Son of God. Luke 2, beginning at verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census would be taken of the entire Roman world. It was the first one that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find the baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great, host of he- great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth to peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angel left them and gone to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that had happened, which the Lord told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. In the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, the writer of that book talks about the timing of God. He says this, to everything there is a season, a time for every event. Verse 11, he said he made everything beautiful in its time. He said eternity in the hearts of men. You cannot even understand what God is doing, yet they tried to even though they couldn't fathom what God was doing from beginning to end. 
There are 333 prophecies in the Old Testament, and many of them are fulfilled in the birth of Christ. Of all the continents, of all the countries, of all the regions, of all the villages, God, hundreds of years before Christ came, predicted Bethlehem. God said the Messiah would come from the nation of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, from the house of David. Isaiah said the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Micah said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Did you ever wonder, though, how? How would God do that? How would God orchestrate all of these events? How did God bring about exactly what he did when he did it? What was going to bring the Christ child to that specific spot on that day? Some say for the very first time, the very first census in history, there was a decree to all the citizens that they should go back to their hometown to register. Now, Julius Caesar had died before the time of Christ, and under his rule and reign, there was more civil war than any other time in Roman history. But when Augustus Caesar came to the throne some years before Christ, peace settled in. Travel became somewhat safe. The tax census initiated by Augustus is a way of showing his power and obviously the size of his territory. But the real event that took place as a result of that census was the birth of Christ. Kind of shows you who's really in charge, doesn't it? And kind of shows you who has the real power. Now, some theological scholars disagree about when the census took place, but most will place it somewhere between 4 B.C. and 6 A.D., which would fit the time frame of Quirinius being governor of Syria during Herod's reign as king. Most historians will date events based on those in leadership. Always fascinates me when I study Scripture and recognize God's incredible orchestration of events. In verse 5 of Luke chapter 2, it says he went there to be with Mary. Now, if you were in Mary's case, and if you even knew the family, you may wonder why that late in her pregnancy. That's not a journey that you want to take that late in pregnancy. It may not even be a journey you want to take at all, let alone now. Most tax laws would have required only the head of the household. But the portrait of Joseph that Matthew paints is one that shows what kind of person he really is and why God chose him. I really doubt if he would have left Mary alone that late in the pregnancy, and the circumstances of her pregnancy probably deprived her of other friends. Matthew paints a beautiful portrait of Joseph, although it's pretty small. And then somewhere along the way, he leaves the pages of Scripture. But every time I look at this story and then point out what I pointed out to you a moment ago when I read Matthew... I've often wondered what kind of Marys they must have had. And when I look at all the people that God could have chosen, of all the couples, of all the people at that particular time, it makes sense to me why them. Joseph had every right to walk away from the relationship. But it says because of his love and his concern for Mary, he stood by her. Then he understood why. And I've got to believe the timing on God in that was perfect. And it says a lot about the kind of individual he was. Had the angel come to him ahead of time and told him it all and then found out she was pregnant, maybe again you would still understand his willingness to stand by her. But his love and commitment to her and then finding out why, to me, is incredible. Even though the scripture says so little about it and about him, certainly makes sense to me why him. 
also understand that this fulfills the prophet's prediction that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. Verse 6 of Luke chapter 2, while she was there, the time came for the baby to be born. Galatians 4, at the very right time, at the very right moment, God sent forth his son. Verse 7, a son. No surprise, no sonogram, exactly what the angel Gabriel had said. It says she laid him in a manger, most likely a stone feeding trough. Have you asked yourself why? I mean, why of all places put him in a stone feeding trough? I mean, it had to be someplace else she could have laid a brand new baby. Stone feeding trough. But think about it for a moment. A story that I read to you a moment ago about the shepherds coming to find him. How many babies in stone feeding troughs do you think they would have found that night? How many stone feeding troughs would they have had to wade through before they found the right one? God knew exactly what he was doing. Wouldn't have made sense to them. Certainly wouldn't make sense to me. Wouldn't make sense to any new mom. But for God's orchestration of events and for the angels to, find, or the angels to declare to the shepherds and the shepherds to find, God had a reason. Place him in that trough. And the shepherds knew exactly where to look because I have to believe he was the only one in Bethlehem that night in a feeding trough. All an ordinary event in an ordinary place orchestrated by an extraordinary God. We sometimes find ourselves always looking for the sensational, the miraculous, as miraculous as this story of is. The greatest miracle of all, God's greatest work, came in the calmness and simplicity of everyday life to ordinary people in an ordinary place. The supreme ruler of the universe among his own cattle. Could you imagine God in a stable, the king of kings in a barn? On the night the angels appeared near Bethlehem, Caesar referred to in verse 1, would have most likely been sleeping in Rome on a golden bed with sheets of fine linen. Would have, be a, would have been attended by servants, protected by guards. By contrast, the babe of Bethlehem, the king of the universe, wrapped in swaddling clothes, placed in a manger, and his attendants were animals. Verse 8 says the shepherds were living out in the fields. Living nearby Jerusalem in verse 8 would most likely, many historians say, indicate that these shepherds were watching sheep raised for the temple sacrifice. Kind of significant that God would have, of all people, appeared to them. Indicating again that Christ was coming to be the not only great shepherd, but the ultimate sacrifice. Verse 9, the angelic appearance that brought fear to them was common in Old Testament occurrences, but what you need to remember is that God hasn't spoken for 400 years from the time he finished the declaration through the prophet Malachi to now 400 years had taken place. So when all of a sudden, after that many years and hearing no stories at all and no intervention of God in the events of humanity, when God shows up in this particular way, it does bring an enormous amount of fear. And then he calms their fears and says in verse 10, I've got really great news for you. This that you're about to receive is for everyone. For all people, everyone is welcome. I find it interesting that Jesus never ever discusses during his life on earth and specifically during his three years of ministry how he came, when he came, and where he came that I know of. But for three years, he talks about why he came. We refer to the story, we rehearse the story, we tell the story, and 
for 2,000 years. If God tarries, we'll stay it again, as we have for the last 2,000 years. Because it's an amazing story and an unbelievable celebration. I just find it intriguing that he doesn't talk about the how and the why and the when, but he, or the where, but he constantly talks about the why for you and me. Spends most of his time telling us why he came, to die on a cross for your sins and mine. So many events, such incredible timing. So that you and I, living in darkness, as we pointed out last Sunday morning, where the broken relationship between us and God could have our relationship restored and have a God who cared about us rescue us and redeem us and offer us life and eternity. The event that restored that relationship began way before Bethlehem, as we'll talk about on Tuesday night. It was predicted in the Garden of Eden when man fell, an event that God orchestrated to unfold on a quiet night in a little town called Bethlehem that had the potential to change lives forever. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that a God who could do all of that, I mean, arrange history, arrange governments, arrange people, change their lives, orchestrate all of these events, do you think a God that could pull this off in doing all of these things and making all of the events take place the way they did, to bring his son into the world to offer us life. Do you think that God could do a good job at running your life? I think he could. Do you think that a God who orchestrated these events and these circumstances to put all of this together and have it come out exactly as he planned knows what he's doing when he puts the pieces of your life together? Do you think? Every time I look at this event, I'm intrigued by the circumstances and how they unfold. I'm intrigued by the people involved. I'm intrigued by the orchestration of events. For the last 36 years in ministry, I've walked through unbelievable circumstances with people. Ones that no one ever told me about in seminary. And ones they never prepared me for. And one of the classic questions that comes up over and over and over again in almost every situation and circumstance is, why? And as lovingly as I know how, I look at them with as much emotion as I can and be honest as I can and say, I don't always know. I really don't. But one thing I do know, that the God of the universe who loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to rescue you and redeem you, to offer you life in eternity, knows what he's doing. And the God of the universe that is able to do what he did to pull this event off and to make it go exactly as he planned knows how to run your life if you'll let him. Now, you can run your own life. He never forces you to do that. You can do your own thing, go your own way, orchestrate your own events. Take it anywhere you want to go. My advice, let this God run it. Let this God lay out the pieces of your life. Let this God be a God that you put all of your trust and all of your faith in, even at times when you don't understand what he's doing or where it's going. Because if indeed you trust him and you lay it all at his feet, I'm pretty certain 
He knows what he's doing. Now, for most of you in the room, you've already done that. Maybe for all of you in the room, you've done that. You trust him. You don't always understand the what and the why and the how and the when, but you trust him. Giving your life over to him and you believe in him without any hesitation at all. But maybe a few of you in the room are really questioning, why is God doing what he's doing in my life? And where will all this go? I don't know the answers to those questions, but I do know that God who loves you and cares about you will walk with you through every single circumstance, even if it's through the valley of the shadow of death. Because he said, I'll never, ever leave you or forsake you. That's a God we can celebrate. And that's a God you can trust. Father, I'm still, after all of these years of reading this story and rehearsing it over and over again in so many churches and so many services, on so many Christmases, I never get tired of hearing this story. I never get tired of reading it. I never get tired of hearing it. I'm fascinated that you would do all of this for us. That you would do all of this and orchestrate all of the events of humanity and time itself for us. So thank you. Thank you for recognizing our condition and not leaving us that way. Thank you for recognizing our hopelessness and offering us life. Thank you for being aware that we walk in darkness and offering us light. Thank you for knowing that without you we have no hope and with you we have everything. All the way to eternal life forever. So Lord, we trust you, we love you, and we thank you for loving us and for giving us reason to celebrate. And that we do. In the name of Jesus, we pray.